Okay. Uh, thank you, Nicholas. This uh, we'll try to make this uh, we'll try to make this lively, and I, I think it's an interesting it's an interesting group because everybody here has a little bit different perspective, uh, and so hopefully some of those different perspectives will come out with. Uh, with differing opinions and not everybody will be on the same page. That always makes it a little bit more exciting. Um, and, and, just, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Anil on my right, you, you guys focus more on uh, older tonnage and recycling. Uh, Marco's in the product tanker side of the business. Bob's primarily in the crude tanker side, but I think he can be agnostic. Uh, and Andrew it, it runs pools and does all sorts of things, right? Is that am I am I generally on on course yeah, that, that so far? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay, yeah. good. I'm good. in. Um, so, to on the outset, um, just so that we know where everybody's coming from, uh, just with a, a quick maybe one word answer, with respect to tankers, in the next oh year or or however long, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Uh, relative to where we sit today, and that will sort of guide uh, how, how, how it, it, we, we can think of your answers to subsequent questions. We'll start on the end, Andrew. I can say optimistic. Optimistic, okay, good. Um, I'm saying the market's gonna turn American Thanksgiving Day, 3 p.m. All right, all right. <laughs> After I finish my dinner. Yeah, a uh, little, little vague, but something to work with, I guess. Uh, Marco? You I'm remember uh, it if I'm right. I'm, um, for sure I'm optimistic, but last time you told me 4 p.m. You changed your mind? <laughs> I think so. Look it up, Marco. <laughs> that can't be right. You're, you're always pushing back the time frames, not moving them forward. I'm optimistic, and uh, these guys are optimistic because I'm going to scrap their tonnages. So <laughs> There's going to be a demand for us. It's a win-win. Huh? Win no, that, that, that's a big difference. Pakistan's open, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, so everybody, everybody's optimistic. I suppose it's easy to be optimistic after uh, the last few months, particularly in the crude tanker market. Um, but um, to that end, I think when, um, when looking through the, the various aspects of the business, uh, what, I, I guess, I guess uh, what makes you, and we'll, we'll go down the line, what makes you the most optimistic? Is it just the, the counter-cyclicality uh, in the nature of shipping? It's always, it's always best to invest when there's blood in the street, or is there something more tangible and fundamental to your degree of optimism? And, and whoever wants to answer that is fine with me. Shall I go first? Sure. I think from, from my side, I, I see two elements here at play. I, I see finally an inflection in the supply-demand situation, uh, which we're probably seeing a little bit more visibly on the product side than we are crude, but that is also following. But I think more importantly, and any poor soul who's spent the last few days with me, including my wife and family, all I talk about is scrubbers. Um, and I think the 2020 regulations that are hitting the industry are going to be the most significant factor to impact shipping, possibly since OPA 90, um, certainly much more important than ballast water treatment plants. This is an absolute date, 1st of January 2020. This is no slow transition, no slow migration, and we're just sort of 18, 20 months away um, before that date. My sense is people have some strong positions, but only about 10, 20% of people have strong positions on this, for or against. 
80% of the shipping money market seems to have no position at all other than to bury their head in the sand and say, well, we'll wait and see, or it's a charter's problem. So for me, I can see a phenomenal opportunity around that for those that are thinking with 2020 vision about what's coming around the corner. Okay, now I, we'll, we'll get back to that in a second because I have an opinion, it, it, well, I have a conspiracy theory on that. Um, but uh, is there, aside from maybe the 2020 regulations, what leaves, or, or for anybody who would want to comment, is there, is there anything else that leads you to be optimistic other than just sort of the natural hopefulness of all ship owners? You know, we're hopeless, I mean, and we have to be optimistic. But, I mean, there has been a lot against us the past few years is backwardation, uh, which slows everything down. Um, you know, the lack of contango isn't just a lack of financial plays. It's the ships go slower uh, when there's contango. They discharge slower. Um, the weather was great this winter, which is never good because everything moves slowly. Um, there was way too much storage, which we all know OPEC is unwinding. So there's been a lot of headwinds. And sooner or later, that, sooner or later, that will right itself. Uh, you know, the, the, the scrapping um, is really starting to kick in. I think what drives the scrapping is, is the volatility of scrapping, not the absolute dollars. If you own V's or Suez's, to see over $400 a ton. Um, you don't know how long that's going to last. And, you know, so if you have older ships, you're playing two volatile markets. You're playing the freight market and the scrap market. Even though the freight market's down, you have optionality in that market. Um, you also have optionality in the scrap market. And on the big ships, that's a big component of your, of your ultimate return. So I think as, uh, you know, ships hit their last intermediate, they'll start to scrap. We saw 20 of these uh, sent already this year to the breakers or to the cash buyers. Right. And um, Pakistan, which was closed to tankers, I believe has just opened, but I'm sure we'll hear more about that later. Um. Yeah. Why I'm optimistic? Uh, for several reasons. First of all, because I think that uh, all the fundamentals are in place, especially for products. Um, inventory has been coming down. Uh, you have incredible numbers of, uh, of depletion of inventory in the United States, especially. Uh, the big flow of ships coming in the market has uh, stopped. Shipyards are kind of full until 2020, 21, so they won't be able to change these statistics. And the uh, world economy seems to be going back to normality, so you have growth. Uh, so I think uh, that uh, all the fundamentals are in place. Naturally, all of these fundamentals have been in place also for a while. And uh, I must say I was wrong, uh, thinking that this uh, positive market would be coming uh, sooner. But you know, I think it's not a question of when will come a strong market. I think a strong market is inevitable. It's just a matter of uh, deciding when. The second six months of uh, second part of the year of 18, uh, beginning of 19. Uh, so it's just a matter of the date. But I think it's kind of inevitable, especially for the products, that uh, we're going to have a strong market. Uh, so. Let me speak from a, a helicopter view kind of, of the okay. situation. Uh, as I'm at the, at the tail end of the scrapping, you know, having been in this business for about 20 years or more, uh, I've seen the cyclical nature of various industries. You know, the, in 2012 was a big year for dry bulk and then containers, and we uh, scrapped like crazy capes and, and Panamax containers. And, and, and slowly the market starts balancing it out. So when we talk about optimism, we're talking about crude and, 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 and the products. I'm talking from the crude angle. So right now there is, like you said, blood on the street. Um, a lot of pain. And in, in a Chaco said earlier, Nick Chaco said about, you know, we'd like to make at least some money. We're making no money. Uh, we have already scrapped, like Bob said, more than 20 VLCCs. 
I would say about 10 Suez Max, about 20 Afra Maxes. So that's a very aggressive pace of scrapping. Almost 50 vessels so far this year have been scrapped. Uh, and, and so you have a lag once you start scrapping aggressively, albeit it can be a one-year, two-year, three-year lag. Uh, you know, Bob wants post-Thanksgiving. Good luck to him, but I mean, I think he's going to catch up just the level of scrapping. I think some of the owners were holding back their vessels simply because, as he said, Pakistan was closed. And as it opens, so we expect to scrap close to 30, 40 VLCCs this year. So I think that's a big number. Okay. So, so now let's circle back around to, um, to a topic that has been hit on repeatedly today in the, and, and, and that, Andrew, you brought up, the, uh, the impact of the IMO uh, SOFA regulations. Obviously, you, you, you already said, Andrew, and this is, we're going to take another poll here. Uh, you, you already said that you think it's going to have a major impact on the market. Uh, just yes or no, do the rest of you guys anticipate this is going to be a, a, a major event um, for the market? Bob? It, it will be. I think it will have a yeah. lot of positive effects. Okay. Margo? Um, I think we'll have a lot of positive effects, like uh, Bob. I'm not sure. Uh, where is the, the, the fallout of all of this is going to be more positive effect because there's going to be new trade routes for distributing uh, low sulfur fuel uh, but I think it's going to have a positive effect. Everything is based on a delta between uh, 0.5 and, and heavy sulfur so I think that uh, that is really very early stage to understand how that will be developing. For sure 20 and 21 there's going to be a positive effect after I have I think it's kind of very difficult for anybody to guess what's going to happen. I'm going to put a little different spin on this again. Uh, I think the scrap market will play a big role in this regulation because if right now VLCCs are about 17 million, if you have to invest uh, 2 million in uh, scrubbers and maybe a ballast water treatment facility, maybe a owner has to see if I'm better off scrapping this and getting a more modern vessel. So, but if the scrap price goes down to 10 million, uh, maybe it makes sense. So, um, so to that end, um, everybody believes every, everybody believes that on the panel here that it's going to have a major major positive impact. What are you doing about it? You guys putting your scrubbers on? I mean, if it's no, going to be a big deal, um, we're not in the business of betting on the differential between different types of oil. <laughs> uh, we're in the business of moving oil. So, uh, people say, you know your head's in the sand, but if nobody gets scrubbers and everyone suffers the same increase in price of fuel, uh, then we're all in the same boat. And, you know, we suffered a double pricing, a double in the price of bunkers before, and we'll suffer it again. Uh, the older ships will suffer more, of course. But I think the, the positive effect is going to be the disruption in transportation, the disruption in systems. Um, the residual fuel that's made in some parts of the world can't be, re can't be refined. It has to move somewhere. It has to be stored somewhere. So generally, any major disruption in supply lines is good for shipping because the system's less efficient. It takes more ships to move, to move the oil. So I think, uh, you know, we're, we're waiting. Um, I agree with Bob about the distribution. We, we have still four ships to be delivered, four LR1s. We installed the scrubber on one of them to see how it goes. The other three would be difficult because they're very close to delivery. I think that if you have to build ships today, it probably would be uh, common sense to have them uh, scrubber fitted. Uh, to retrofit scrubbers, I think that's uh, kind of a more complicated issue. 
So I think there is wait and see. But I think there's going to be a big impact in the chaos that's going to come in the distribution lines. That's going to be the benefit out of the whole thing. So, so let me interject my conspiracy theory here. Um, it, I, I agree in general with, with you, Bob, that if everybody's in the same boat, well, fine. And frankly, if the cost of fuel goes way up, then it makes some economic sense to slow your ships down to the extent that you can, which tightens the, the market. And so uh, everybody here should wink, wink, nod, nod, not put scrubbers on their ships because that is a, a leverage that you can have over your customers uh, that, that ultimately could cause the market to tighten pretty substantially. Uh, although, by the same token, if I really believe that, I would say I wasn't going to install scrubbers and then turn around when nobody was looking and, and actually do that and hope that nobody else would follow that path. Uh, you, you think there's a possibility that, that this could translate into, into a really good tanker market as a function of slow steaming? I don't know. It, what, what do you think, Andrew? Is that a possibility? <clears throat> well, I think it, it's quite slow to speak one story and do something different because the order book for scrubbers is fairly transparent. It's suddenly known that we've put our flag in the ground and committed to both putting scrubbers on our new building fleet um, as well as retrofitting existing ships that we have. I think to Bob's earlier comment, I think we're not all in it together. From our point of view, if we have a, an opportunity to buy fuel, but what today at a very low differential is $250 cheaper, I would rather turn left at the gas station and go and take that low cost fuel rather than paying the higher fuel because when it comes to the market, predominantly tankers, you're paid in world-scale terms, um, we will be the ones getting the better sort of uh, net contribution from being, being, being fixed. But I think the differential, as you know, what McKenzie is a hinting, is towards like the $360 per tonne. That is a significant increase in your bunker price. And nobody enjoyed bunker prices when they shot up to 600 and 650 tonnes, was it some 10 years ago? It, you know, it significantly impacted the performance of, of all the tanker companies. So I think surely if you expect that that differential is going to be higher, you cannot just say, well, I'll just take gas, I'll ask a bit slower and just face, face the trouble with everybody else. We don't want to go and face the trouble with everybody else. Owners are always act like sheep and follow each other. We actually want to be different and we actually want to survive going through into 2020 and beyond. Okay. The best way to do that is, is if nobody <laughs> follows you, right? That would be even better. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it all depends on the differential and how long it takes to oil companies to, um, to catch up or how much oil is available. And it's an economic decision. Uh, it depends upon the age of the fleet. If you have new builds, that's one decision. If you have older ships, that's a different decision. There's an increase in operating costs. It's just a matter of you know uh, how old the ship is, what your balance sheet looks like, what you believe the differential will be, and what you think the rest of the market's going to be. You know, I think that I saw some uh, some numbers. There is over 90,000 ships in the world trading. And probably by 2020, there'll be a few thousand also with the best intentions scrubber fitted. So what is everybody else on the 88,000 going to be doing plus? You know, so it's, it's a kind of a big decision that you cannot change uh, today. And then it's very complicated also because you have big storage problems. How are you going to store the heavy fuel, the uh, 0.5? You can't commingle them. So this has to be a, a dramatic increase in storage capacity in every port. So I think everybody has a certain story. For example, container ships have 
pre-planned routes. I think they are very good candidates for this. Uh, ships that tramp, uh, I think it's more complicated as an issue. So I think it's really, everybody has his own story, but I think that at the end, the chaos that's going to be ensuing, the, the distribution that's going to be uh, disrupted, that's going to be the big uh, benefit out of all of this. Chaos, that's, uh, that's a lot of fun. Um, so, what, as, as we look, uh, as, as each of you guys look, um, uh, put your, your, get your crystal balls out, right? I'm asked to do it all the time, so I'll turn the tables a bit. And, and you say, okay, we've heard a lot already today of all of the technological changes and other things that are going on. Five or 10 years from now, uh, how is the tanker market in particular going to look different than it does uh, or not? Uh, do you think there's going to be more consolidation? Do you think the public companies are going to play a bigger role? Uh, do you think there'll be, you know, um, uh, I don't know, any, 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 any big changes, smaller role of charters, uh, I mean, or, uh, of brokers? Uh, what, what's, uh, what's the world coming to? Um, I think that the, the question that you ask is a very existential question because, you know, in shipping, you try to make today a decision that you have to look forward for 15, 20 years if you have a new build or something like that. And I think today it is more and more difficult to make these kind of decisions. Just speaking strictly about the product market, I think the market in the future is going to be more consolidated. Uh, public companies are going to play a bigger role. There's going to be always smaller owners, but they're going to play a much smaller role in the whole. You can start seeing it now. There is a big disruption in the chain of the, of the, of the ships. We bring them to 15 years, and second-tier owners who buy them back from us after 15, 16, 17 years, due to the lack of financing or restrictions, smaller owners are totally absent from the market. So it makes it very, our pipeline in this respect has been interrupted. So I think there is going to be big changes. Uh, I think that the products are going to play, I don't believe that there's going to be a world without uh, uh, carbon fuels uh, absent completely. There are certain ones that are totally, you can't substitute them, jet fuel, how you, you can't run planes on electric. So there are certain things that will be. So probably it's going to be a very mature market where you grow by consolidation, smaller margins, and there's going to be two, three big, very big players who are uh, dominating the market. Probably there'll be something like that. Yeah, I agree with Marco. Um, the world consumes 100 million barrels of oil a day. And you, you, we're not going to change fundamentally how the oil moves. And we're not going to get away from carbon very quickly. Um, peak coal, which we've been trying to get rid of for 100 years, peak coal was three years ago. It continued to increase for the past 100 years, just at a slower pace. But it's going to be the same with oil, I think. We increase our oil consumption about 1.5, 1.6 million barrels a day, year in and year out. That's a tremendous amount of energy. And no matter what we change to, it'll have an effect on the planet. I mean, people say, oh, we should have more windmills, or we should have more solar panels, and we should. But if you took all of our energy from solar panels in the U.S. to fuel the cars, it would take up every piece of real estate in the U.S. and would have an effect. So, you know, we, the th fact is we use a lot of energy. And when you use a lot of energy, it's going to have an effect on the planet, whether it's fuel, whether it's uh, carbon, whether it's windmills. If you have windmills, what about the birds? You know, what about the shade? What about the wop-wop? What about the bees? Everyone's scared about the bees. You know, it'll have an effect on the planet, and it's going to come in slowly, and it's expensive. So the most efficient way to move huge amounts of 
energy around the world and to store it is with oil. And I, I just can't see how in the short run it's going to go away. I mean, maybe I'm naive. But as I said, peak coal was three years ago. Um, and tankers are sort of fundamental. They're big boxes that carry oil. Uh, there'll be more regulations and there'll be some consolidation because the regulations will, uh, inc will insist that big companies um, operate the vessels. But I think fundamentally, you know, the change will be around the edges. I think to, to go beyond the birds and the bees, um, I think probably <laughs> one, of the, one of the big changes in maybe, it's, it's actually, frankly, it's already now, I think the impact of OPEC and the obsession with OPEC and what they're doing will become less prevalent as the states will become an increasingly important exporter. I think something that's happening now with the prevalence of the, with the Chinese leasing companies and really where the beneficial ownership of, um, of shipping is moving. I think in, you know, we already have some very large Chinese PRC-based owners today. I think, uh, I think we'll have some very, very sizable Chinese institutions on a forward basis, which may not be as consolidated as we are today. Um, having just had the last drink session sponsored by the SGX, it would be nice to see one day some major shipping companies listed in Singapore. Um, I think NOL was one of the last ones to leave here, mm. rather than the, you know, the dependence on sort of Norwegian and US predominantly based um, locations. So I think going forward, in addition to the, the comments of my colleagues, I think they're two factors that may, may prevail. Neil, uh, any changes coming in the scrapping business, or that's uh, just the, what you see is what you get? No, I think uh, the scrapping is a, in a highly misunderstood business. Um, I think the awareness is coming in gradually about the various type. What's affecting is the regulation, you know, especially the EU regulation, which is you know really uh, silly regulation to, to put it bluntly. Uh, very hard to comply if you are a EU-based owner. Uh, you know, especially if it's an EU flag vessel, that's even worse. Uh, if it's non-EU flag, you can't be scrapping a vessel from an EU port. I mean, so these are all restrictions that affect significantly. Uh, the value of an asset, you know, if you are operating in, in those areas. So that could be a two-tier market. The good thing is the recycling part of it is turning green more and more. In India, I think uh, at least 60 yards today are green, which is more than 55% of the yards that are operational, uh, which is great. So you have, because China as, as a recycling nation is pretty much uh, ending. So you have Turkey and, and India. So fortunately, Bangladesh and Pakistan are gradually, you know, Pakistan has you know, Bob said was shut down for about a year and a half. They just came up with a new guidelines for recycling tankers, uh, which they just came up today. The, the NOC was issued, no objection certificate. Um, so it, it, that kind of regulation which is happening domestic is good. It's good for the industry. And what we are seeing is the experience curve kicking in. So when we first started this green recycling, uh, you had to take, an owner had to take a discount of close to you know, 15% on the value of an asset. Today, that discount is about 3%. So, you know, all these things are, are, are good. I mean, it's just we don't have enough capacity to recycle things responsibly. So, what doesn't help is when, uh, you know, the, constantly the, the platform attacks the industry and owners feel um, intimidated, you know, going to an Indian, Indian subcontinent yard. Uh, that's not good because then what else are you going to do? Um, but in, otherwise, I think it's, 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 it's going for the good. And as I said, as long as our job as, as, as traders is to ensure that there is a value for an asset. Because as I said earlier, if a, if a $17 million asset suddenly becomes, uh, to exaggerate, a $5 million asset, suddenly the whole play is different. 
It's different for the charters, it's different for the bankers, for owners, the, the business changes. But I think people have always stayed away from the recycling market. It's, a, it's one of those dirty little things. I'm very proud of it. I mean, I think it's a great industry to be in. It's a very green industry. It's an environmentally responsible industry, but I think those messages don't go out. Uh, if anybody, I always tell the owners, come and visit the yards. I tell people, come and visit the yards and see it for yourself. And yeah. what's, what's the capacity of Pakistan for tankers compared to India? What is the capacity of? In Pakistan for tankers compared to in, ca capacity for India. Oh, I mean, Pakistan is much smaller. There are about uh, 30 yards. The, the, the question is, again, what kind of tankers we are talking about? VLCCs, again, these are expensive items. So you also need uh, yards that have the capacity to buy. You have a letter of credit for 17 million, 18 million. So that would be about 10. So we talk about quite limited capacity. Does that just uh, follow up? With Pakistan back online, should that be a tailwind for scrapping prices, do you think? Uh, not really, because there's already a lot of unsold inventory. There are about, I think, nine VLCCs that are still unsold uh, that traders like us took delivery of earlier, hoping, anticipating Pakistan to open. So we've been anticipating this for about two months now. It finally happened. So I think it's going to take at least, if, if prices will improve, this is going to be in Q4 mm -hmm. of this year. Okay. Um, so we'll, we'll hit a, a couple of tanker fundamental sort of uh, strategic questions. Um, Andrew, we'll start with you because you, uh, you guys over at Navigate have and, and do both crude and product. Uh, product tanker owners, and I, I think maybe Marco would be in this camp, uh, have, have said that uh, they, they think it's possible for the product market to decouple and improve even if the crew tanker market doesn't. Whereas crew tanker owners, and I'm not sure if Bob would be in this camp, but have tended to say, meh, won't happen, right? Uh, they're, they're inexorably linked. Uh, you kind of do a little of each. What do you think? Inexorably linked or, uh, or, or possibly separate? For once, can I give a mediocre answer and say relatively linked? I think fundamentally you can't break the link from crude, VL, sewers, AFRAs, LR2, swing, clean, dirty, LRs, clean, dirty, LR1s, LR2, down to, you know, to the handle, down to the MRs. In, so in that sense, you can't de-link. But what I think is maybe changing is often we talk of recovery as being crude-led recovery. And I think what we will see this time, despite perhaps the recovery being triggered by supply rather than demand, is that the recovery will be precipitated by a product recovery. Um, it's actually instigated primarily by product demand rather than crude demand. Um, so in that sense, it's not decoupled, but definitely I'd say that the, that the product is pulling the crude at the moment. But I think probably by then, crude will quickly follow. And there, there's no broken link there. Interesting. Uh, Either of you, yeah. you guys have any? Uh, I think I, I would tend to agree because I think the biggest volatility you see it in the products is on the bigger ships, the LR2s and especially the LR1s, which are ships that uh, feel the impact of trading clean or dirty. I think that for sure, if you start having a stronger uh, crude market, a lot of these ships will be going back inside the, the crude, remain dirty, and they will not be poaching on, 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 on the products. So I think uh, relatively linked, uh, but I think also I'm very optimistic that demand could be triggered by, by the products. Because at the end of the day, uh, we've been having, we're going to have a couple of years at 2-3% uh, growth of, uh, of, uh, of tonnage, 
when there is growth of market uh, constantly, it's been an average of four, four and a half percent for the last 20 years. So you know, so something, something has to give. Yeah, I think if you look at the 20 years, if you look at a 20 or 30 year cycle, they look to be the same. But when you get down inside the individual trades and individual years, they can be very different, right? Okay, so uh, I'll um, try to leave a, a time for a question or two um, and, and make this my last one. So uh, if some friendly capital provider were to uh, meet up with you afterwards at drinks and say, I have $100 million, I, I need you to invest it in the next month, what would you buy? And we'll go down the line. And you guys take careful notes because you can meet them afterwards with drinks to <laughs> give them your money. So, Anil? With me? Just let's keep on buying some VLCCs and store them. You know, 100 million can go very quickly. Six VLs and I'm done. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think that um, we need uh, new building orders as much as we need a hole in our head and in, uh, in, in our market. Uh, for sure, uh, we would be, would be there's a lot of very attractive tonnage back in the echo ships. I think it's a great moment to buy. There is a point of flex, and, uh, and these are great ships. And the, the eco store is back with, uh, with violence, because uh, if there is this increase in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in fuel, uh, this, the eco concept is coming back uh, with a swing. You know? So it was uh, out of favor before, because then oil came off. Now it's going back up, I think. Uh, there's a lot of second-hand ships to be bought, and it's going to be a very good investment. Uh, it's simple. I'd team up with Anil, and I would build a new recycling yard in India and buy as many tankers as I could and scrap them. And then you're competing with him. No, we team up. I think well, we're, we're excited by all sectors at, at different times. Um, I have the, the pleasure of also looking after Navigate offshore interests as well, and uh, that's perhaps a little bit more difficult to raise cash than other sectors now, but if there's any time to buy one particular asset type, it may well be offshore, so I might put it out of the tanker pool and uh, put it into offshore. All right. Uh, good answers all. Um, well, we have a few minutes. Uh, if there are any questions for our, our panel, if not, I'll make something up. Uh-oh. Mark, you wanted a question. <laughs> Well, uh, you're nagging. <laughs> Nicholas, did you have a question? Please, Nicholas. Somebody <laughs> ask it. No. Uh, all right. Well, then, in which case, um, so uh, what, if any, uh, I, well, I, I would say uh, there's been a lot made of the development of uh, uh, the potential for U.S. crude to, say, come to China or come to Asia, and that might, as you said earlier, might offset the impact of OPEC cuts and sort of, sort of change the world from a swing producer standpoint. I think that's uh, something that a lot of people have talked about. Uh, away from that, are, are there any other interesting dynamics or developments that you guys are seeing in terms of the movements of either crude or refined products that uh, you think have the potential to really be the next big story? Well, we see a lot of products moving out of the Gulf going to South America. South America is a very interesting case because uh, for uh, 
the crisis has happened, uh, for in general all their capex on, on new building refineries has been slowed down dramatically. And now you are starting to see a recovery. There is a huge flow of, of products going from the Gulf of the US to Brazil, Chile, and then you have countries like, uh, we have a joint venture with Flopec, who are the Ecuadorians, uh, the oil company. They don't have a refinery in Ecuador. They have decided that they uh, extract oil, export it to refineries in the US or other places, and then they import back the product. So when you have these kinds of dynamics, you cannot be but optimistic on the market. You know, so. I just think we underestimate the amount of oil that's going to come out of the States. I do too, by the I mean, way. There, there are, um, we're mostly owned by Riverstone, which is all energy. And the dynamics of the um, oil business in the U.S. is different than anywhere else. There are thousands and thousands of small companies that each have a different price point that can move very, very quickly and um, can react to a change in, in prices of oil, unlike a national, unlike a major. You know, each project is small. Um, as the prices go up a dollar, a dollar, 50 cents, another project becomes viable, another project for 1,000 barrels, 1,500 barrels. The producers are um, financially astute. They lock in futures so they can lock in their profits. So as soon as the price goes up, even if it's only for a little bit, they lock in the futures and they produce the oil. Um, the American pipeline system is, is changing very, very quickly to an export system to bring the oil out from the interior. Uh, the ports are changing quicker than you would think to enable larger ships to, to come in and take the oil. Uh, the, the, uh, it's a huge thing in the U.S. To, it's really helped the labor situation. It's helped some of the, uh, the states, like the Dakotas, um, the employment is almost, unemployment is almost zero. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. There, I, I listened to one guy um, who was another Riverstone company talk about uh, when the oil was at 100 bucks a barrel. He said, I couldn't find a sober truck driver for $125,000 a year. Um, he couldn't buy a hamburger for less than $30. Uh, and then six months later, a truck driver was $50,000 and a hamburger was $5.99. Um, that's how fast the, uh, the prices move, you know, in the labor supply and the, and, the, and, and the rest of the supplies in the industry. So we can adjust very quickly. I, I agree with you. Uh, I was talking uh, before the shale uh, explosion in the, in the United States, before the huge pickup, and I was talking with the head of shipping of a big refinery. Uh, one of the biggest in the, in the United States, and we're talking about more or less what you say. You wouldn't believe it, but last year I spent most of my time buying railroad uh, cars. So you know that's, 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 that's how the dynamic of this business is moving, very very incredibly. And the technology has increased threefold. They say they can drill three times further horizontally than they used to be able to. The pressure is three times much. There's a shortage of sand in the U.S. to push through the system to push the oil out of the ground. But what I think will surprise us the most is what we're not thinking about today. Bob, let me ask you a question on the previous thing. If I was to buy 10 VLs from the market today, what would that do the freight rates? You know, you, <laughs> yeah, today nothing. I think it would be like 20 or 30, but 20 have left the market um, and it hasn't moved. I would have thought 20 would have done it. It's 20. Are the 20 out of the market or the 20 sitting somewhere, an anchor? Yeah, out of the market. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, just back to the, the, the trade flows, the, the, you know, the US story is well known and, and totally buy that. I think probably region this area, I think the, the advent of the independent refineries in China, which by and large are bigger independently than each of sort of U, U, European refineries, mm -hmm. will be quite significant. They are, both the old companies in China and the independents are getting licenses to export. Again, I think this supports some of the recovery from the, from the MR side as well. So I think that's not a game changer per se, but it is something new. 
Uh, and then the regional game changer, of course, is the Middle East Gulf with the, with the massive refinery development there and the uh, increase in, in so higher value exports of the products in the Middle East will be significant. And that's going to go largely long haul east or long haul Europe and west as well. So. And, well, and what we forget, that every day that comes by, standards of living are improving, and refining, which is not one of the cleanest industries, will be shutting down as standards are improving. So today we see Australia totally dependent, and we see Japan consolidating. I think that this is going to be a big factor. Refining will be concentrated in few places, and consumption will be everywhere in the world. And this is the main driver of the product business. All right, well, uh, we are out of time, and you guys missed your chance to ask questions, so sorry about that. But uh, thank you very much, panelists. Thank you. 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 Thank you.